Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a better place. Now, how is this for romance? The first Valentine's Day I celebrated with my partner a decade ago or so, I bought her the perfect present. It wasn't chocolates, roses, a teddy bear she had to pretend to like. No, it was shares in an African cell phone company. Now, let me give you all a pro tip. When you give a present like that and your significant other doesn't mind, you know you've got to keep her. Now, why would I do something like that? Well, that year, we decided to give each other presents that we thought would help make the world a better place. And I believe then that the spread of cell phone technology would do more to end global poverty than any other technology or contribution to a charitable organization could. And you know what? We were right. Our stock purchase, as small as it was coming from two poor newlyweds, helped finance investment in cell phone infrastructure in the developing world. Towers, satellites that brought cell phone technology to folks living below the UN's global poverty guidelines. Uh, Goat herders in sub-Saharan Africa, Cambodian rice farmers. That's the kind of technology that can transform lives. And over the last decade, we've seen it do so. And there's all kinds of cool applications that can be built on top of that cell phone technology. This kind of technology is now so widely available that people in the developing world, from sub-Saharan goat herders to Cambodian rice farmers, are carrying smartphones. And now that smartphones are commonplace, there are fascinating new applications built on the back of that technology that would have been unthinkable even a few years ago. I had the chance recently to talk with someone who's developing precisely that kind of application. Catherine Clayton is the co-founder and CEO of OmniViz. It's a device that will make testing for cholera outbreaks faster, cheaper, and it could ultimately save thousands of lives in the developing world. And it's all built around the smartphone. Omnivis as a word means to see everything. But what we first <laughs> what we first want to see is the cholera pathogen in water because mm. cholera it affects five million people in forty one countries every year. And this disease in many places is seen as a disease as what affects the most vulnerable and most poor. Mm. And so what we wanted to do was take what's currently a seven-day detection process down to 30 minutes. Mm. And we made a platform that takes a water sample anywhere in the world and can detect four cholera in 30 minutes. And it's enabled by a smartphone, Mm. which also has GPS data and timestamping data to see where cholera has been detected in the world. So someone at an NGO could send healthcare workers, chlorine Mm. tablets, filters, and help this community before we read about an outbreak in the newspaper. Now, what's the baseline that you're kind of, you know, improving upon? How, how did this have to happen prior to your device? Right. So before it was a lab test. So somebody would have to go out to the field and, and get a water sample in a bucket, usually bring it back to the lab. And then after that, the lab would have to do an enrichment process, mm. then TCBS streaking. So thinking about Petri dishes after that, they would have to isolate the colony Then they would have to do serology to figure out the serotype of the bacteria and then do polymerase chain reaction. And then after that result, send it oftentimes for a secondary confirmation. And it's going to take like you said, seven days, I think, in the presentation. Um, And that equipment's expensive? Is that Very much. So each of these things, it has its own disposables about it. It has its own equipment for it. Like a polymerase chain reaction machine is very different than the incubator that you need for growing the Mm. the cholera, for example. So all these things are equipment that are thousands and thousands of dollars and that I got to see in my own PhD laboratory. Yeah. Yeah. Which, but, you know, which a lot of places in the world are not so, uh, you know 
privilege <laughs> to have that kind of equipment around. Exactly. So we're talking about like almost an exponential gain from thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars of expense mm -hmm. for the old system. Right. Uh, and seven days down to 30 minutes, you know, real time communication of data. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a, that's a real big improvement, right? I mean, right. what was the motivating impulse for you behind this project? I've been interested in disease diagnostics for a long time. I went into the medical field because when I was a little kid, my own uncle died from HIV mm. AIDS and that was the nineties. And so I said, I want to go do something in medicine. And I was studying abroad in Thailand and was working with engineers without borders on a water recovery project. Being a biomedical engineer at the time, I noticed that there were no hospitals nearby Yeah, and thinking, how do people get medical care? So I decided to do my master's and PhD because I wanted to do something about this problem, but I didn't know what or how, but I thought I could gain the skills yeah. to figure that out. And uh, a gal came back in my lab and told me that she'd been studying in Haiti for two months and was talking about this disease, cholera. And growing up in San Francisco, I wasn't that familiar with cholera and learning about it and seeing that it was affecting so many vulnerable people. It was for me that opportunity of working on something that I was so passionate about, bringing that water background and that disease diagnostic background together and taking my technology and, and doing it. Mm. And I, I really hope that this helps people. Yeah, very cool. Um, now, it's uh, for our viewers who our listeners obviously can't see the device. Right. It's, it looks like a, a box attachment that you slide a smartphone into, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Why, why did you decide to go with a smartphone as the kind of base of this device? Right. So I think it's over 5 billion people in the world have a phone. Mm -hmm. So that means familiarity with phones is much more there. And so thinking about that simple platform, but also phones are so powerful. They mm. can do so many advanced computations. Uh, they can GPS things. They can timestamp things. They can talk to the cloud. There's so many opportunities that you can use with a phone and translate that to take what was once a huge computer system down yeah. into something that's in the palm of your hand. Huh. And so that's why we wanted to go with the phone. Somebody can toss that system into their backpack and yeah. go right to, out to the field instead of lugging it on a truck and having multiple people take it off and sit under a tent and wait for it to process. Mm. So. And even in remote parts of the world which where you know there's no wired access, they are more and more likely to have cell access or satellite access, I mean, through uh, cellular networks. Absolutely it makes a whole lot more sense to train a smartphone to do testing than to train testing equipment to reinvent the wheel to be a smartphone. I mean, like to be a supercomputer. Right. Um, and that's actually kind of a, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. It's a very quick process. You said 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper. How much cheaper are we talking? Like, what does that actually look like? I mean, what are you selling? Right. So we talked to a lot of our partners before we went down this rabbit hole that is Omniviz and saw that it was taking about $100 per test for cholera. So going to one water sample and doing this whole test was $100. So we decided to make our disposable test kits $10. Uh, much more affordable to be able to do. And so that's the, the component that's the toss away. Yeah. The second is what we were just talking about. The smartphone with the sliding platform around it. And that is $1,000. And so we compare that to a laboratory with all the infrastructure and all the equipment that we need. It is much less than these tens of thousands of dollars worth of lab equipment. And then having that mapping capability is and data is a nice addition to it to now create this reporting, etc. 
you've mentioned before uh, on stage that uh, you're interested in other and be going beyond collar. Can you describe that for us? Yeah. So by just changing the chemistry in that disposable we were just talking about, we can detect for different diseases because we do the basis of DNA amplification and uh, RNA, basically going to DNA amplification. And so as long as it has DNA or RNA, we can do it. And my huge vision is to be able to work on disease diagnostics all around the place, anything that's infectious, because I really want to work toward disease elimination. Yeah. Now you've mentioned a few specific examples. What's what's the next wave after cholera? The very next one from stakeholder analysis is doing E. coli, but not any E. coli because there's good E. coli and bad E. coli. Right, right. So we're looking at the, the hemorrhagic one, which mm. is 0157H7 strain. Mm. That's where we're going next. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So you water. hear that there's an... What does that look like on the ground potentially? So, you know, you get an alert that there might be cases of hemorrhagic E. coli in the village out in the province. Yep. And even here in the United States. So a lot okay. of the, the spinach and other kind of products oh. that we're getting also has that E. coli in it. So oh. around the world, this is a huge issue mm. uh, and it affects people in different ways, sometimes just with the water that they drink, but sometimes with the food that they later eat. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so you'd send someone with, with, with the device and a test yep. to test like the water supply at a restaurant or something. That Redder, was... Water supply at a farm, water supply in a different country that somebody just might be drinking from. Yeah. So yeah, either oh, way. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, well, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, best of wishes and best of luck to Omniviz. Thank you. Since we're discussing the social and economic impact of cell phones in the developing world, I thought who better to talk to than our friends over at Human Progress. And do check out their website sometime. If you look down in the in the show notes, you'll see a link to humanprogress.org, which just contains a massive set of databases full of facts about the ways that the world on net is becoming more prosperous, healthier, and freer. So I asked Human Progress's editors, uh, Marian Tupi and Chelsea Follette, to join me. Welcome to the show. Show, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Now, to start, Marion, you wrote an article last year titled The Miracle That Is the Smartphone. What's so miraculous about smartphones? Well, maybe you should start by acknowledging that we are making this podcast on a day when uh, uh, three people who were involved with the development of uh, uh, lithium-ion batteries mm. got the Nobel Prize for chemistry, I believe. And it is the lithium-ion batteries which power cell phones. And um, that particular article had to do with a concept in economics called dematerialization. And dematerialization refers to a process through which you are able to get more value from less input of resources. So when you think about the cell phone, uh, which you have in your pocket, it is for uh, a lot of lay people, non-professionals, a replacement for things like cameras. Obviously, you wouldn't expect a wedding photographer to be shooting pictures with a cell phone. Um, but for normal people uh, going about uh, their daily lives, um, cell phone camera is perfectly sufficient. It has replaced a video camera for a lot of us. It has replaced... Um, Alarm clock, uh, post-it notes. It has replaced um, 
white noise machines and all sorts of other things that would have previously required not just a lot of materials, but a lot of energy to run. So we are saving both materials, but also energy by relying on this one object. And that's not just good for us from a consumer standpoint, not only our our house is less cluttered, and um, we are spending, but uh, and also that we spend much less money on it. But it's probably good for the environment as well. Mm. And, and most of those substitutes are, if not a hundred percent, a perfect substitute. It's it's ninety plus percent. It's pretty close for most ordinary uses. I think, as you pointed out, like I, I'm always amazed with cell phone cameras. Now, you know the. the um, it's common to have like an algorithmic engine that can interpret what would this photo look like if there was more light, right? Like a n- night vision type f- photo cameras. I mean, it's, it's astonishing levels of capacity for someone who just wants to snap photos of their kids or their pets. Or and like, in some cases, uh, the app that's replacing another object is actually even better than mm. what it's replacing. Take maps for example. A handheld map, uh, not only. Uh, Costs more in terms of uh, clutter and waste, the trees that have to be sacrificed for that paper, etc. But using a map on your smartphone is so much easier and intuitive because it can track your location and it can very quickly estimate the length of time it will take you to get to your destination, etc. And and safer. Imagine opening a map in the middle of a drive. Uh, although, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I hope. Um, yeah, I mean the 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 value of cell phones. It. it doesn't have to be that cell phones completely replace every last camera in the world. But if they do replace cameras for 80% of the world, that's still a lot of savings. Um, and I think your point is well put that it's not just a function of consumer welfare, though that's certainly true. And um, and people, if my understanding is, a, a, and I'll put a link to a, a Pew survey at the bottom, they went and asked folks do cell phone, across the world, do cell phones make your lives better? And people overwhelmingly say yes. Now, they often will also then go on to be less certain that it makes society better off. But when it comes to their own individual experience, they feel better off. But as you point out, the benefits are not just to the individual consumer, right? This takes fewer resources, less electricity, um, which I imagine is especially important in places with less infrastructure to provide those things, right? Like with less reliable uh, electrical generation, with uh, less reliable infrastructure. I mean, they, a cell phone combines services that are important in that are important for everyone, but particularly important in the emerging world. So, where where do we see the important role of cell phones, not just? across the world generally, but the role it's playing in the developing world in emerging economies. Well, l- let me start with one statistic and then sure. hand it over to, to Chelsea. Um, during the era of fixed phone lines, that was an era when uh, most of the phone companies, even in developed world, were owned by the government, and there was usually a phone monopoly. I mean, in Britain, for example, there was a phone monopoly um, by the British government until the 1980s. And in fact, um, the fixed phone line uh, coverage 
grew very slowly and it peaked in 2002 at 21%. So let me just repeat that. The fixed line coverage in the world peaked at 21% of the people who could have had a phone, 21% did. In the developing countries, it peaked at 1.6% of the possible coverage. Because if you think that phone monopoly, fixed line phone monopolies were very bad in developed countries, they were substantially worse in countries which were underdeveloped uh, or poor countries, especially in Africa. So in those places, at best, 1.6% of people ever got a cell phone, uh, ever got a fixed phone line in the first place. So cell phones were able to uh, basically leapfrog this particular bottleneck. And in societies, essentially in societies which never had phones because because the fixed line monopoly is so useless, they moved straight from the ho- not having phones in the first place to cell phones. And the spread has been rapid. When we're talking about the benefits of uh, cell phones and smartphones, both to the consumer and to the environment and to society, I think it's important to get a sense of the scale we're talking about. Today, in sub-Saharan Africa, the poorest region in the world, there are about 85 cell phone subscriptions per 100 people. That is huge. And globally, there are 110 cell phone subscriptions per 100 people. There are actually more cell phone subscriptions globally than there are people. And of course, that number gets even higher in developed countries. In the U.S., it's 122 per 100 people. Uh, and this this is just a huge increase. In 1990, just 2% of Americans had a cell phone. Now, we have more cell phone subscriptions than people. And as for smartphones, globally, today there are around 2.5 billion smartphone users. That's around a third of humanity. Mm. I mean, it, it's interesting, too, that we see this explosion that that, that you guys are describing um, in cell phone adoption. Smartphone adoption is kind of an ongoing uh, boom as well. Um, but there's an entire ecosystem built on top of that technology, right? And And obviously literally there's you know apps and software and the like but i don't mean it in the in in that limited sense i mean the sense that we build the infrastructure of our modern financial system on top of cell phone technology potentially uh, especially in places um like sub-saharan africa where once upon a time unless you were part of a very thin elite of like government officials um, a very small number of folks in like capital cities in sub-Saharan Africa, you had no reasonable access to banking, right? You had no way of um, the, the even the national currency might be unreliable. You couldn't open a bank savings account, couldn't get credit, couldn't work your way out of like a kind of a subsistence farming kind of lifestyle. But now because of cell phones, there is a financial ecosystem built on top of cell phones that give access to, I don't know, you know sub-Saharan Goat farm, goat herders, and a whole new class of people who can join um, the global economy. Um, this is where I think M- M-Pesa comes in, or right? That's an app uh, for people who do not have access to mm-hmm. traditional banking that fulfills a lot of the same functions. So, how does that work for folks who aren't are in our audience who aren't familiar with M-Pesa and, and and the concept of mobile banking? 
Well, this is a Kenyan system, I believe. It was developed in Kenya, and uh, you pointed out that the the lack of access to banking is part of problem with poverty. In other words, there are very few banking branches that you would you would expect to find in a rural Kenyan village or somewhere. And of course, the road system is broken. And so getting to town, to nearest town, uh, to open a bank account and then use it in the way that, that we used to prior to cell phones was near impossible, right? Um, so vast majority of the people who were stuck in the rural areas would never have access to that. So M-Pesa is essentially a, a phone app that allows you to move money um, between between people, uh, between, between phone numbers, essentially. Um, you don't have to have a bank account uh, in order to do that. You can send... Uh, you can send money through your phone company to anybody you want, and it's very similar in uh, a very similar system has developed in Zimbabwe after their hyperinflation, uh, where people can send money to each other um, um, in different currencies, thereby uh, sidestepping the problem of a collapsing currency. So uh, um, these apps have a profoundly positive effect on uh, people, especially who are in dire, dire straits. Um, places like Venezuela, places like Zimbabwe, um, cell phones, um, and the ability to transfer money in a currency that is not, as I said, that is not being deteriorated by hyperinflation is actually very important. Now, um, <clears throat> So there is an economic effect of the proliferation of, of cell phones and smartphones around the world, um, which is positive. Uh, uh, there was one study in the magazine Science which suggested that M-Pesa alone, and I believe it was in Kenya, uh, brought 2% of the population out of poverty in like, the course of uh, a, a year or two, which is impressive that you know an app would have that large of a, an effect. But it also has a role in um, kind of political movements, is my understanding. So maybe we can talk about that for a minute. Um, what role have cell phones, smartphones played in spreading not just economic liberty and prosperity, but political liberty and prosperity in uh, around the globe? Right, right. So not only are, are smartphones particularly beneficial for people in poverty, but for people lacking freedom, as you point out, they can be very valuable. We've seen this uh, with the Hong Kong protests, for example. Smartphones can enable ordinary people to access censored content, to document abuse or brutality by government agents, and to share information with one another and to organize politically. And so we've seen uh, smartphones uh, as a driving factor behind uh, a bunch of movements around the world. Um, yeah, in North Africa during the Arab Spring, I believe that uh, cell phones proved to be quite useful in Egypt, Tunisia, and elsewhere. Um, uh, where else? Uh, and Hong Kong is the obvious example uh, where it has been used during the umbrella protests, but uh, also more recently. So politically, it has a role to play. But let's not forget what I think is the most important contribution of cell phones. And that is that uh, people have access in their pocket to uh, the 
to the stock of knowledge of the entirety of human civilization. Uh, and I think this is absolutely extraordinary. You no longer have to go to a library. You no longer have to borrow books. You no longer have to buy books. You don't have to uh, rely on, on, uh, on, on, on the will of the censors. Basically, in your pocket, you have an answer to every question that you could possibly ask. And um, that's also very important. I've heard of some fascinating um, kind of applications of that of, the, of that access. Uh, everything from um, everything from like self organized movements by by uh, subsistence farmers who have cell phones to exchange data. I mean, they're they're finding data about like global stock prices. For I mean literal stock like their cattle or goats. Yes. For like what's the what's the global price? What's the regional price? Let's pool together the knowledge we can find online and figure out the best time to sell our herd. That's right. I mean, or um, uses of of smartphones and and other, well, and I suppose tablets as well. But in in the classroom, like there's an opportunity to expose kids to literature from around the world, the textbooks, free textbooks that are available on, online, um, stuff that once would have been prohibitively expensive to import into a country can now be found uh, through phone technology. Are there any other examples of that kind of information sharing that, that, that you guys can think of? Sure. I mean, um, one of the most obvious ones that I hope we are moving toward too is that um, instead of classroom teaching, um, where again, uh, you know, it used to be that a small sliver of, of the population was able to enroll in a college and listen to a professor in that kind of a setting. We can bring the professor to the living room of, of any child uh, or a teacher to a living room of any child. So one of the big problems in developing countries is that even though officially a lot of children are at school, in reality, a lot of uh, teachers are absent uh, they do not. Uh, they are not conscientious employees. Uh, they are barely in the classroom, and when they are in the classroom, they may be too drunk or too tired, and they don't teach. Now, that doesn't mean that the children are at fault or their parents are at fault. I'm sure they want the best for their children. One way to get around the problem of of that kind of bad teaching is to equip them with a computer or a tablet, and then having them being taught um, by somebody elsewhere. Um, and uh, I hope that we are moving in that direction. We can, again, again, we are talking about a bottleneck, a bottleneck created by the government, which is incapable of providing the very basics for the, for the population, especially in developing countries. And we can get around it. Yeah. Let's talk about the bottleneck a little bit more. So my understanding the chronology that you've kind of laid out for us here is that once upon a time, up till, say, the 80s, most telecommunications companies were... Um, kind of government protected, sometimes public-private hybrids. I mean, in the United States, we had AT&T, which was a government protected mon monopoly, even though it was a private company. Um, I think in Britain, was it Vodafone? They, there was a... Maybe I've got British to, Telecom. British Telecom. British Telecom. Yeah, Mrs. Thatcher privatized it in the in the eighties. Yeah, and AT and T was broken up yeah, and, yeah. and no, no longer government yeah. protected in the U.S. and around about the late seventies, eighties as well. So, how? What role did that play in the bottleneck? Well, I, I mean, in a sense that you know you had to book the government service months, sometimes years in advance, and uh, it it took an extremely long time for somebody to turn up 
with a phone, put it on your desk, and then plug it into the system. I mean, if you have, it was a, it was a problem with a typical government service, mm-hmm. is that if people are promoted on the basis of seniority rather than output and the quality of service. Uh, they have very little incentive to actually do anything. So, you know, when when you have a large state monopoly um, that is dominated by uh, by the trade unions, then of course, uh, you know, the 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 output, um, the productivity is very low, or at least that that used to be the the experience. I think part of the problem is that we are now so far removed from having. Um, our basic needs delivered by by government monopolies mm-hmm. that people forget what life was like in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when a lot of things were actually provided by the government as a monopoly service. I mean, in Britain, it was, uh, of course, cars and, and, uh, and phones um, 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 and, and health care. Mm. I mean, maybe we are moving moving toward <laughs> right. a monopoly on healthcare in this country. But my point is that uh, so many of the things which are now provided on a market basis have been provided by monopolies and people forgotten what it was like. But what it is like is very simple. There is very low productivity um, and uh, and you have to wait for months, sometimes years um, for for the phone to actually – to, to actually arrive, and when that happens, um, th- that is that is the bottleneck. Uh, you cannot expand your business, for example, if you cannot get uh, more phone lines because you cannot get in touch with other employees and so forth. Sorry. No, absolutely. And and to bring that back to uh, to cell phones, that privatization led to market competition that then led to rapid, rapid technological progress. For perspective, in 1984, a cell phone weighed two pounds, took 10 hours to charge, and cost over $10,529. That was not that long ago. (laughs) But progress has been rapid. And on this progress point, um, so I do know just a touch about the history of cellular development and some of the the first mobile phones were you know they were they were put in the trunk of a car they actually were used in like police vehicles in the 1950s so we've had the potential for cellular networks they were obviously even larger than the ones you're describing in the 80s um, but that technology was never really innovated on or developed for 30 years in part because AT&T had no particular reason to develop cellular technology that would challenge or or undercut its landline, very profitable landline, especially very profitable long-distance landline service. So a technology that could have, you know, the 1950s could have been the starting point instead of really the 1980s. Uh, and who knows? I mean, with a world with cell phones 5, 10, 15 years earlier might have looked like um, – so I mean, so it's interesting to think about. You know, there's an alternate future in which even right now we wouldn't be impressed with the smartphones we carry around in our pockets because we would have started the development curve, the competition development curve, ten years, ten years sooner. So I guess check back in ten years, think of how impressive your cell phone is and how unimpressive the cell phone you're listening to this podcast on right now is by comparison. That's the future we could be living in. That's uh, right, potentially. Um, yeah, I mean, when you when you were talking about long distance, that reminded me. You know, in the early nineties, my father moved to South Africa to to uh, to be a medical doctor there, 
And in order to speak to him in South Africa, you had to go to the, co- to the postal office and make an mm. appointment um, <laughs> where you would come back at a certain point in time on a certain given date when that phone call would be made. <laughs> and so <laughs> this, this is how you have to be. Now, uh-huh. of course, you can Skype with anybody any, anywhere in the world on a moment's notice, yeah. uh, just seeing them online and make that. So, so things uh, have improved dramatically. Uh, my pet peeve with uh, people alive today is that um, uh, we just don't know about enough about history. I think that if anybody uh, was introspective enough uh, to to look back in time or uh, had the had the incentive to look back in time and learn more about history, they would be absolutely amazed by the sort of life that we have today. Um, I, I wonder why more people don't do it. Mm. You know. Well, it challenges our pre- preconceptions, which can be a, a painful process when something challenges your your priors, right? One last question for you, Chelsea. Um, you had a piece uh, last year, I think, about kind of technological moral panic, how people, new technology comes along and people are afraid of it. They tend to downgrade their, their, uh, their perception of its benefits doesn't match their fears about its consequences. And so that can lead to developmental delays. Um, does that apply to cell phones, uh, do you think? Absolutely. We've seen this kind of moral panic again and again, whether it's uh, to bicycles or radios. You can find all sorts of examples throughout history where uh, new technology that today seems very commonplace was considered to be uh, a huge threat to society. And today, people sometimes talk about smartphones in this way. They say uh, that it's it's terrible that we have these omnipresent uh, that we have this uh, need to look at our smartphones constantly, that it's ruining uh, human relationships, etc. And you saw the same kind of moral panic around television, around radio, around even uh, literacy, if you go far enough back. Bicycles. Um, well, look, I think that there's certainly some things that we are discovering about social media and developed or rather enabled by cell phones which are worrying. I mean, Twitter, for example, um, is can be used for good and ill. Um, but I'm not sure if Twitter has really helped the political debate in this country, for example. However, people have a remarkable ability to adapt and to evolve new ways of um, – to adapt to new technologies and develop new ways of using them. I suspect that in 10 years' time, if past is the prologue, We'll be looking at this period as a period of adjustment where people, as these new products came online, it took a little while, but eventually we figured out the extent to which we want to interact with them. So, for example, Facebook. How much do you want to, you know, that's a good example of a technology that we are sort of beginning to, I think, um, coming to grips with, Mm. where people are sharing fewer of their most intimate details on Facebook than they used to. A lot of people have decided that actually they can be perfectly happy without having a Facebook and so forth. So different people will interact with technology in different ways. Some people will stick with Twitter and Facebook. Other people will move on. Some people will emphasize their privacy. Other people will not. Um, I think we'll figure it out and eventually end up in a place where, where happiness is maximized. Well, I've certainly ended up in that place on this episode. So thank you guys so much for coming on, uh, Mary and Chelsea. And until next week, be well. 
Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.